time willing, we're going to finish up the chapter here, verses 14 through 21. What I want to do is this, is read all of it to make sure we get the context of it. Go back and we'll break it down and see what the Lord has in store. Verse 14. Now this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of Him. If anyone sees his brother sinning, a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. Now, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and he has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. A lot of great passages in there, a lot of good verses, and let's break this down. Take a look at verse 14. Isn't verse 14 amazing? Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And then you throw 15 onto that, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we asked of him. you got to love that. Whatever you want, you get. Whatever you ask for, you get. Now, the problem is people read verses 14 and 15 like that, and they start imagining God up in heaven being like Santa Claus. This little idea, if you make a list, you present it to him, he checks it over, and he says, you've been good enough, so therefore you get whatever you ask. Or they treat God like some type of genie in the bottle. Life's going rough, so they need a wish granted, so Lord, we're coming to you now, and we're going to rub the genie's bottle, and hopefully I will get what I need and get what I want. And Lord, when I need you again, I'll go rub the genie bottle and get you back. And Lord, when I need you again, I'll present to you my list The problem is they're completely misunderstanding and not understanding at all what God is talking about here with prayer. So before we take these verses 14 and 15 and just walk away from them saying it sounds like whatever we want we get, let's go break this down. The key phrase, the key phrase in verse 14 is his will. Now this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, that is key there. If that phrase was not there... It would be a Santa Claus genie in the bottle verse. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything, he hears us. But it's according to his will. That's why it's so vitally important to pray for the will of God in your life. You may have analyzed the situation. You may have looked at it and said, this is the perfect answer to my life. This is the perfect healing. This is the perfect job. This is the perfect spouse to be. This is the perfect home. And then when it falls through, you stop and you're hurt and you're crushed and you're bothered. Why? Because you weren't praying for God's will. You were praying for your will. And when your will didn't happen, then all of a sudden it's sad. Part of the beauty of trusting the Lord and trusting His sovereignty is trusting His will. But let's back up a little bit here. Take a look at 14 with me. This is the confidence that we have in Him. Confidence. Confidence. It's Jesus. It's not my works. Aren't you glad that you can't affect prayer by what you do? And let me explain that. Aren't you glad that the system's not built like this? If you want your prayer answered, just read more. Just pray more, fast more, do more, and you'll do such a good job that God will have to up in heaven say, I have to say yes to your request because you have buttered me up so nicely. Aren't you glad the Lord doesn't work that way? Because the problem is you could then get your will anytime you wanted because you would just do enough good stuff. Now, 
Christianity, if you want to compare Christianity to other world religions, and don't take that statement too far, we're one of the rare world religions that really don't have that element in our faith. Most other world religions, you have a God that you can butter up by doing enough good. And if you do enough good, you can hope to get in. You can hope to get your will done. We have a God that loves you so much in heaven that will not turn away any request that furthers the kingdom, glorifies him, and he just loves us. And you also have a God in heaven that loves you so much that he'll tell you no because you trust his will. So there's a confidence in that. That when I really pray and say, Lord, here's my life situation. I'm just a vapor. I don't know what to do. I'm giving it to you and I pray your will be done. I can trust that when God's will happens, it's the best situation for me. And that's the confidence I can have. And that confidence only comes from verse 14, Jesus Christ. The confidence we have in him. In him. That is vitally important. A lot of times I have people that have a minimal faith or maybe no faith at all. And they're going through a difficult time and they're just searching for an answer. So they contact and say, hey, could you pray this for me? And really what happens is they're just really trying to get their will done. And they're trying to find whoever can to go on their behalf to the Lord. I tell you guys, I want you to know him. The confidence that we have in him. Because once you know him, you can say, Lord, I trust you. And I'm seeking your glory. I'm seeking your good. And I trust that whatever happens is going to be for the good. So this is the confidence that we have in him. The next one is that if we just ask. Aren't you glad it's that simple? You just ask. And God hears. There's a great verse in the book of James. James 4 verse 2. Actually, let's go to that real quick. Just backtrack a few books there with me. Just go back three books to James chapter 4. Take a look at James 4, verse 2. You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You do not have because you do not ask. I wonder how many times we miss out on something because we never asked the Lord for it. We never asked Him to move that mountain out of our life. We're just going to do it in our own wisdom, our own intellect, and our own power, and then we wonder why we get frustrated. We never ask the Lord to step in and really just part the sea for us, and so we try to do it on our own, and then we walk in this frustration. What would happen if we would just ask? I was reading a devotional recently, and it described God's throne. And you know what it says in the book of Hebrews, that we can boldly go to the throne of grace in Hebrews chapter 4. And the author made this wonderful point. You could realize, he says, it's a throne of grace. It's not a throne of judgment. It's not a throne of anger. It's not a throne of retribution. It's a throne of grace. That's the God we serve. He wants us to come to him and ask. It's one of the things I try to tell my boys all the time. Don't be afraid to ask me. The worst that's going to happen is I say no. And if I say no, it's because I want what's best for you. And I looked at the situation and it's no. That's what's best. I can boldly go to the throne of grace, once again, not judgment, not hate, not anger, and say, in confidence in Jesus Christ, Lord, I'm presenting my request to you. You do not have because you do not ask. So, Lord, I'm asking. I'm asking. Now, you may be sitting right now saying, okay, I've done this, and I've asked him, and I keep asking him, and I keep getting no. Then aren't you thankful for his no's? Aren't you thankful that he stops and he says no? It's not what's right for you. Because take a look at James 4 if you're still there. Look at verse 3 now. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. 
Lord, thank you for looking through the layers of my life and realizing that that request I'm asking you is completely, utterly selfish. And I, you need to say no to this because this is not for my good. And therefore, you're going to say no. And I actually thank you and praise you for the no's. And I'm not going to treat you like Santa Claus. I'm not going to treat you like the genie in the bottle. I am going to just pray and give it to you because you know what's best. This is what I've realized on these times that I've asked God to move mountains and the mountains don't move. I start misunderstanding what the purpose of prayer is. Prayer is not necessarily just going to God and giving him my list of wants and desires. You have to remember what else prayer does. Prayer changes me sometimes, not the situation. There's been many times, many times, I've had a real issue with somebody, and I am just completely, utterly worked up about them. I mean, you just feel the flesh boiling. You just are just, you think about them, and you get angry. And so I'm out praying for them, and I'm praying for their heart to change, praying for them to go deeper in the Lord. I'm praying for them to get saved. They don't go deeper in the Lord. They don't get saved. And what happens is God changes my heart, and I just love them now. The situation didn't change. My perspective changed. Sometimes when I pray, the problem does not change. My perspective changes. So please remember when you go to the Lord in prayer and you ask, sometimes the answer is, James, I'm going to change you, not the situation. I'm going to change your perspective, not the problem. And I say, Lord, thank you for that. And back to now 1 John 4, confidence, we've talked about that. Ask anything, anything. You can take anything to the Lord. I don't know where this came from, this mentality that we only take really big things to God. You know, 1 Peter chapter 5 says this, cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. So why would I not want to cast all my cares upon him? And you hear these thoughts from people. People say, I don't like to pray for myself. I just think it feels selfish. You know what I always tell people? I say two things to that. Number one, I pray for myself more than I pray for anybody else. Number two, Jesus prayed for himself. Jesus asked other people to pray for him before the garden. Jesus set the example of taking things to God the Father. Jesus set the example of saying to people, pray. So therefore, if I sit here and convince myself, oh, I don't want to pray about things, we're completely misunderstanding prayer. Take all your burdens, worries, concerns, everything to God. Take it to Him. Boldly go to the throne of grace in confidence that you have in knowing who Jesus Christ is and ask anything according to His will. Ask anything according to His will. Now this is where it gets kind of interesting. Because if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Verse 15, and we know that he hears us, whatever we ask. We know that we have the petitions we asked of him. We get it. Some of your translations go even deeper. It says that you get anything you want. You get one translation that says, whatever you wish. Now that's a fun verse. Whatever I wish, I get. Anything you want, I get. Let's talk about that for a second here. We need to build on this for a little bit. What's it mean to pray according to his will? John 15 verse 7 says this. You don't need to turn there. This is Jesus speaking. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Well, think about that. You will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. 
Okay, that sure sounds like the genie in the bottle type prayer again. Whatever I wish, whatever I want, whatever I desire, and it will be done for you. But did you catch the beginning part of verse 7? If you abide in me and my words abide in you. See, when I abide in the Lord and his words abide in me, all of a sudden my desires start to disappear. And my desires become the Lord's desires. Because the more time I spend with the Lord, the more I realize I want what he wants. As Psalm 37 verse 4 says, God will give you the desires of your heart. I've heard teachings on that verses before, and they have taken that completely, utterly out of context. I know pastors that have taught that you take a picture of what you want, and you take that picture and you carry it in your pocket. And that's the desire of your heart. There was a pastor I saw one time that gave you a coin that had a verse on it from Deuteronomy, and it was called, and I'm not making this up, the power to get wealthy coin. And you put that coin in your pocket, and you just carry that coin with you. Now, here's the deal with that. If I would just read to you Psalm 37, 4, and I would just read to you 1 John 5, 14, and 15, and I would just leave it at that, there you go, folks. That's the God you serve. What do you want? Take it to him. But we have to understand what it means to abide in the Lord, to let his words abide in you, and what it means to say the desires of the heart. And I'm going to repeat this point again. The deeper I go in Christ and his word and knowing him deeper, the more I realize my desires don't matter, Lord. I want to glorify you. I want to see souls saved. I want to see marriages healed. It's not about glorifying me. It's about glorifying you. And take a look at your prayer requests. And I'm not saying this to pick. I'm really not. Look at your prayer requests. Are your prayer requests, quite honestly, very Santa Clausus, very genie in the bottle. Uh, Lord, give me health. Lord, give me wealth. Lord, give me happiness. Lord, take care of this. Lord, do this. Oh, and by the way, thank you. Amen. Are, are your prayer requests going before the Lord and saying, Lord, I want to see you move in this marriage. I want to see you move in this church. I want to see you move in this person's life. Lord, I want to be used by you. All of a sudden, Lord, I realize the only thing that matters is you. And, and yeah, Lord, I'm not going to lie. This physical malady in the name of Jesus, I ask for healing. Lord, I'm not going to lie. I would really like you to move in this. But really what matters is, is seeing you glorified and you go deeper. And it's important to stop and teach this. Because so often we'll say to people, hey, did you pray about it? Oh, I prayed about it. What are we really saying? I spent 30 seconds telling God what I want him to do. What does he want you to do? Well, how does he want to move in your life? I, I encourage you, write it out. I got a notebook at home that is my prayer list. And I have different prayer groups that I pray for every day. Mondays are marriages, Thursdays are missionaries, and this like that. And it kind of just keeps me track. Friday's my boys and my wife. And I can keep track of stuff. And I got lists that I can go back now and put little check marks beside and put amen. Because, I, Lord, I want to see you move in these people's lives. And I take this sincerely. One of the first teachings I ever did out here 20 plus years ago is when Samuel said, far be it for me to sin against the Lord by not praying for you. I take that very seriously. Prayerlessness is sin. If I tell somebody I want to pray for them and I don't do it, I just lied. And you may say, oh, no, you forgot. I don't want to forget. I don't. That's why if I have the moment, let's pray right now. Let me write it down. I'll pray for you. Because here's the truth. If I go to someone and I say, would you pray for me? I'm really expecting and hoping that they stop what they're doing and go before the Lord on my behalf. So I want to be able to pray that way for other people too. And so we give it to the Lord and there's a confidence. And if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And that, what an amazing thing that is. 
Now, one more teaching point about prayer here before we move on. Because it's easy to look at these passages and say, well, then why are we praying? His will be done. This happens a lot. Why should I even ask? Because if it's only going to be His will going to be done, why would I even ask, etc.? Well, we already covered in the book of James that you do not have because you do not ask. I think there's a lot of believers that don't see the Lord moving in their life because they never asked the Lord to move in their life. They're missing out on a whole awful lot. There's people that desperately want to be used by God, but yet they don't go to the Lord and say, Lord, lead me, guide me, use me. So that's why we need to ask. But let's talk about some of these other things. Why do we get other people praying? Is it because more people can butter up the Lord? No. Once again, can you imagine serving a God that would just give in to requests because he got so annoyed by so many people praying? That's how some people parent. One kid comes up and asks for it. It's like, no. Well, now they got their brother and their sister. And now they got their brother and their sister another person. Finally, the parent says, I don't care. Just go do it. Can you imagine serving God that way? Guys, if we can get enough people praying, we're going to annoy God so much that he's finally going to give in to our request. No. Okay, so then why do we pray together as a group? If you're a note taker, write it down. Three quick verses. 2 Corinthians 1.11. 2 Corinthians 1.11, Paul says by getting other people praying that many thanks go up to God. Many thanks. The more people you get praying when the Lord moves, the more glory God gets and the more we give him thanks. Now, this is difficult because our human nature is designed that we just kind of are selfish people. So when a prayer line request comes in and it's for somebody's cousin's aunt's third nephew that you have never met... And they live a place that you don't even know where it's at. And they're saying, would you please stop and pray for this person? You're like, I don't even know who they are. There is no emotional attachment in any way whatsoever. But here's the deal. When you stop and you pray for that person, and I say honestly, sincerely pray for them, when hopefully the request comes back and you get the praise report, you honestly feel like you know that person. You stop and say, Lord, I rejoice. Many thanks. Lord, I thank you for moving in that person's life. We prayed for Donna tonight. So when we come back and hear that the procedure went well, when you see Donna, probably more likely when you hear Donna, you know, be it next Wednesday or next Sunday, you will stop and you say, I'm neat. It's neat to see the Lord moving in her life. And many thanks go up to God. That's the purpose of getting people together and pray. God gets more glory. God gets the praise. Many thanks go up to God. What's another reason why we pray? If you write this down, Romans 15.30. Romans 15.30. Paul says when he's asking people to pray, it creates unity in the body of Christ. It reminds us that we're not a solo island Christian. This is something that I, it's hard to believe that we have to keep reminding people. God has not designed you to do this Christian walk on your own. He's not. He has designed you to be part of the body of Christ. And so therefore, as part of the body of Christ, we need to have unity together. So therefore, part of the way we have unity together is by praying with people. That's why there's a lot of times we'll end the Wednesday night church service with the time of prayer. And we'll come up and you're like, well, can't we just pray one-on-one? We could. But there's unity. And I've seen so many times when people get together to pray, you may lift up a request and that person there that you've never met beside you is dealing with the same thing. And all of a sudden, there's a spiritual connection that happens there. 
And there's a unity because you say, realize someone's struggling with the same thing I'm struggling with. Or I've already been through that and now I can help go and minister to you and encourage you. The Bible talks about laying hands on people. And when you lay hands on somebody, it creates that unity to say the Lord is moving and working. And if you've ever had anybody come lay hands on you, you know that you just, you just I, I hate to use this term because don't take it the wrong way, but you just feel the power of prayer. Lord, people are moving and working and there's unity. Now, why else do we pray and ask people to pray? It changes us. Romans 12, 15 through 16. Romans 12, 15 through 16. That's the very famous verse of we're supposed to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. I've come to the conclusion that when I have a, a, a prayer list for people, it changes me. So therefore, when I am praying for someone's child, it helps me understand the love of Jesus more, that there is a family out there hurting right now. Hurting. And Lord, I want them to have the God of comfort to come into their lives. I may never meet them, I may never know them, but I want to do that. I had a situation a while ago. Someone contacted me with a prayer request, and it was for a young child that was going through a lot of health issues. Never knew them, never would know them, never knew the parents, never would just, it was one of those, hey, pastor, could you pray? So I prayed for this little gal, and you know, Lord, be with her. Health, healing, you know what I mean? I prayed, Lord, sincerely move. I was driving someplace for a uh, church ministry, and this girl came to mind. Lord, be with her. You know, move in her life. Now, I had a lot of time to think. So as I'm thinking, I really reminded myself of a message that I heard a pastor teach one time. And he said he prays for people the way that he wants people to pray for him. And he quoted the verse where Jesus said, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so he says, when he prays for people, he says, I'm going to pray for them the way I want people to pray for me. That really kind of hit me when I heard him teach that. So I started thinking, okay, what would happen if it was my kid? That was on life support. It was my kid that looked like they weren't going to make it. And so I contacted people and I said, would you please pray for my child? Would I want them just to do a, Lord, uh, just be with James's son and just uh, pray for some health and healing and just be with James and Dawn and, hey, thank you, Lord. Hey, I'll take it. Amen. But how would I want them to pray? And so at that moment, on the way to this visit, I stopped and I thought, okay, this girl that I've never met, I, I'm, I'm going to pray for her the way I would pray for my kid. And so I just, you know, just started envisioning the physical malady she was going through. And Lord, I'm just moving her, moving her lungs to give her breathing capacity. And just really praying and, and just thinking about the mom and dad. And I started, what would I be going through at that time? And Lord, just encourage them, God of comfort, and just really pleading for the Lord. Okay, get home that evening and I get a text with an update on her. And about how great she's doing. Now, I don't say that to say that was my prayer. I don't mean it that way. But when I got the update, it honestly moved me. It honestly moved me because I was emotionally, spiritually invested in this person. Rather than just, oh, that's neat, great, amen, move on. No, there was a moment of, wow, Lord, you moved. Your, your power, your majesty, you're, you're, you're just so amazing. And I realized the importance of more people praying, to be quite honest, it changes us. It teaches us to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. One last verse on this before we move on here. 2 Corinthians 6, one. 2 Corinthians 6.1, it's a really interesting verse. Paul writes that God wants to be a worker with us. That's why he wants more people praying. God desires to work with us. Now let that sink in, and you may not get that right now. Chew on that for a while. He wants to work with us. He could have sent angels to proclaim the gospel. He could have just written it out. He could have done so many other things. 
He chooses to use sinful, fallen human beings, and he wants to work with us. Do you know how difficult that is? I can remember growing up as a kid, dad wanting me to come out to the barn and help him. And going out and helping him and, hey, can you go grab the crescent wrench and I bring back the screwdriver? Can you go grab the screwdriver and I bring back the socket? You know what I mean? Just constantly doing things wrong and whatever. To this day, I still struggle with hammering a nail straight. And just. I, and even as I got older, I was helping someone do a roof project years ago. And um, we were putting shingles on. We were just nailing. And I, I couldn't get the nail to go straight. I mean, just I'm doing my best. I'm really trying. And I remember these guys were there saying, and they said, I, I think James has got too heavy of a hammer. Give him a lighter hammer. So they gave me a lighter hammer, and I'm still trying to do it, and I can't get the nails. I think James has got too heavy of a hammer. Eventually, I felt like they gave me like a little tykes plastic. It's like, James has hit the hammer. I'm not very mechanically inclined. And I fast forward now. I want to teach my boys how to do stuff. So my boys come, and I say, okay, guys, we're going to go work on this project, whatever. Okay, can you go to the garage and grab me this? Can you grab me that? And they do the same thing that I did. Obviously, it's genetic. They can't tell the difference between this or that, whatever. I would love to sit here and tell you how patient I am with it. I'm not. I have this little saying I say, it's just easier for me to do it by myself. Sometimes I think the Lord sits up in heaven and says, you know what, it would be just easier if I would do it by myself. But he doesn't. He says, I want to work with you. That just blows my mind. I bring absolutely nothing to the table in any way whatsoever. And God says, James, I still want to work with you. Yes, I want to work in you. I want to work around you. But 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, I want to work with you. That just blows my mind. So when I look at prayer, the more people praying, the more people give glory to God. Many thanks are given. I see unity happen in the body of Christ. I see prayer changing me as I pray for other people. And I see God designing to want to work with us. It's an amazing thing. So that's why we say let's get people praying Let's all rejoice together. Let's all give thanks together. Let's all be unified together. Let's allow the Lord to work in us and move through us. And prayer is an amazing, powerful tool that the Lord has given us. So before we move on here, any quick questions about prayer there in verses 14 and 15 that we covered before we move on here with the rest of it? John. Um, I was curious about Ellen. In uh, Luke 15, Right. And I know we can't manipulate God because we're just going to keep bothering him. Mm-hmm. There's something said there, and then in reference to prayer, that because of our persistence. Yeah. There is. And I believe it's in Luke 18 1. Yes, then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. There is a persistence in prayer that is God is looking for and needing. And there's also another parable that people quote a lot, which I think you're kind of mentioning as well, too. The one with the, um, uh, the widow with the judge. Yeah. Where, yeah. And that is something, too, where if you look at parables, there are certain parables that Jesus does that's called parables of contrast. And if you remember that story of the widow and the judge, what happens is the judge is called a wicked judge. And since he's a wicked judge, it's supposed to be that idea of a parable of contrast there. Let's just go look at it. This is the beauty of Wednesday night. Uh, Luke 18. Luke 18. Luke 18, uh, verse 1. 
Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard men. There was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Now, the problem is if we teach that as a picture of us and the Lord... That's exactly the analogy we used earlier. Hey, let's get enough people together praying so that way we annoy God to give in. This is what is called a parable of contrast. Look at the description of the judge. He does not fear God. Um, I do not regard man, verse 4. He comes right out and says this. I do not fear God or regard man. And the point of this parable is this. If this judge, this judge who has no fear of God can stop and say, I want to move in a widow's life to help her, how much more will your loving Heavenly Father want to move in your life? Jesus does the same thing if you go back and look when he taught on prayer about if you ask for a piece of bread, is your dad going to give you a stone? Well, no, of course not. His point is, if your father on earth who is sinful knows enough to take care of you and do good, how much more does your heavenly Father? And so, But there is the point there of the persistence. And what a neat parable it is to also stop and realize that we don't have to wear God down, that He does hear us. But there is something about continuing to pray. Jesus prayed three times for something. Paul prayed three times for something. There's nothing wrong with that. And so therefore there is a persistence in prayer. And I do believe that sometimes we have a tendency to quit. We give up. Because we don't believe the Lord is moving or moving quick enough or something like that, so we have a tendency to give up. So now let's go flip this around. Does this mean that you just need to constantly, constantly keep repeating it? No, because Jesus also taught stay away from vain repetitions. Some of you may have grown up in a denomination or a church that taught you vain repetitions. Just go do it. Do it more. Again, passionately. That's not biblical. Okay, well then how do I find the balance of something that's heavy on my heart... And every time it comes up, I want to give it over to the Lord, but yet it's starting to feel like a vain repetition. How do I find this balance? Some of you are here tonight, and you may have a child that's not right with the Lord, and your heart is absolutely, utterly breaking, and you could just keep praying and praying and praying. Okay, so let's take all these passages now and put it together. I heard a great teaching on this one time, and I'm just going to share what he thought. He says he prays like this, and I thought, this is true. It's heavy on my heart. I give it over to the Lord. Let's say it's a child that's not right with the Lord. You know, parents can relate to that. So let's say you got little Billy, and Billy's not right with the Lord, and Billy's making really poor choices in life. Billy is moving away from the Lord, far from the Lord, and your heart is breaking over Billy's choices. So, Lord, I come to you now in the name of Jesus. I give you, Billy, my earthly child that you love, you died for, and I just pray, Lord, you bring people into Billy's life. I pray your Holy Spirit's convicting Billy. I pray that right now, and you just give it over to the Lord deeply and passionately. And you get done praying, and you have this moment of just peace. And then five minutes later, despair. Okay, Lord, I just pray, and you repeat the entire prayer again. Bring somebody into Billy's life, whatever, you know, go, go, and again and again. And then you got ten minutes of peace, and then you do it again. This guy said, and I think it's really neat, he goes, instead of repeating everything, since you already gave it to the Lord, he goes, how about your prayer now be, Lord, I thank you for moving in Billy's life. I thank you for what you're doing that I don't even see right now. Lord, I'm already going to praise you for how you're going to move in his life. And Lord, I'm going to start praying now for the people that you're going to bring into his life. You're still giving it to the Lord, but you are now in all circumstances giving thanks, as the Bible says. 
You are in faith praising Him for Him moving and working and doing things. Instead of turning the prayer into this worldly, wordy, I should say, vain repetition, it is now a passionate prayer of also praise and thanks. Does that mean you can never mention again Billy's salvation? No. But you also stop and say, I don't have to keep repeating words. I can also just say, Lord, thank you for moving. Thank you for what you're doing. I mean, can you imagine your child coming up to you, desperately needing something? And I don't know what it is. Let's say it's something really small, but yet to them it's a huge deal. Our youngest son, Tyrus, still has a hard time pouring a full gallon of milk. Because when he pours it, it ends up all over the floor. So the rule is, Tyrus, if it's a full gallon of milk, come get us. So Tyrus wants to sit and eat his breakfast. He's got his cereal poured. He's all ready to go. The gallon is full. Dad, would you come pour the milk for me? Sure, buddy, let me finish this up, and I'll come take care of it as soon as I get done. Two seconds later, Dad, would you please come pour the milk for me? Sure will. Let me finish this up, and I will come. Dad, you don't understand. Now tears are flowing. I need you to come pour the milk. Now, as a parent, I love you. I'm going to come pour the milk for you. I'll take care of it. Just give me a second. Now, in six-year-old time, a second is an eternity. In adult time, I'll be there really quick. I think sometimes we go to the Lord, and the Lord says, I heard your request. I'm moving things behind the scenes that you don't see. Can you have some patience, please? Can you learn to trust me? Can you learn to have faith in me? And what happens is we don't see the Lord moving in little Billy's life, and so we're not praying hard enough. We're not desperate enough. And once again, depending on how you were raised, okay, well, you've got to go do more now. You've got to go do more prayers. You've got to go do more candle You've got to go more to this. You've got to go do more that. Or maybe I just need to stop and say, Lord, you are a God of grace, and you're moving and working, and I thank you, and I praise you. And so I'm going to turn my worry into praise. I'm going to turn my concern into thanks and give it over to you. And so I will be persistent in prayer, but I'm also going to be persistent in praise and thanks as well, too. So chew on that. I think it's a biblical concept, and it gives God the glory that he's moving and working. Any other quick questions here about prayer? Mark. Yeah, I think it's praying in confidence, yeah. You're praying confidently that your God who loves you, and keep using the example of Billy, God loves your kids more than you love your kids. I didn't die on the cross for my boys. Jesus did. So, John. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amen. The God of comfort living inside of you. Amen. Amen. All right, anybody else here got a question about prayer? All right, we got 10 minutes. And then now we have the most difficult verse in the book of 1 John. So let's see what we can do here. Uh, Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin and there is sin not leading to death. Well, that's a fun verse. Now, there are many different ways to take this. I'm going to share the two main points. I lean towards the second one, but I do need to share the first one because there are some very intelligent people that believe the first one, and, and that's fine. We're not trying to push anything. I think the second one lines up with more scriptures. Uh, the first point of view is that some people take a look at verse 16 and said that this is talking about the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit which is the only unforgivable sin. We're running out of time, but it's in Matthew chapter 12, and it's this idea of rejecting Jesus Christ. 
So therefore, if you reject Jesus Christ, that's the only unforgivable sin. Any other thing you do can be forgiven. But if you reject Jesus Christ, how can you have forgiveness? Because you don't have a Savior to forgive you. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so some people say verse 16 is making a reference to that. My issues with that is, number one, it says in verse 16, if anyone sees his brother, brother. Now, I know brother has become a very collective term. But generally speaking, in 1 John, when John uses the term brother, he seems to be really referring to brothers in the Lord. And so, therefore, that really wouldn't apply. And number two, if I saw somebody who wasn't saved and rejecting Jesus, why wouldn't I be praying for them more? I mean, almost verse 16 then would be saying, well, that, eh, they don't want Jesus, so I'm not going to pray for them. I think I should pray for them. So, some people do believe that, and I want to just throw that point out there, because I'm not going to try to just completely ignore that. Um, I believe verse 16 is actually talking about physical death. I think that is. Now, before you start thinking this is really strange, let's put all the verses together here. And I know we're running out of time, so I apologize, because we're kind of moving here quickly. This is not that strange of a concept when you look at all the passages in the Bible. If you remember where Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, he says at the church of Corinth, people were abusing communion. They were turning communion into this party of just basically drunkenness, what have you. And Paul said, because of you abusing communion, many of you sleep. Many of you have died as judgment. And there seems to be in the Bible this example of uh, there is sin that you commit that does not take away salvation. We're not talking spiritual death, but it takes away physical death. Where there is a time where the Lord says, you are causing more harm than good on this earth. And you are my child and I'm bringing you home. J. Vernon McGee has this great little story about this. That It's just a fun little story. But he says, basically, imagine that you got your little kid, since we're using the name Billy. We'll stick with Billy. Uh, you got your sweet little angel, Billy, and you're doing dishes. And Billy's out in your yard playing with the neighbor boy. We'll call him Johnny. So Billy's playing with Johnny, and you're sitting there at the sink doing dishes. And you see your sweet little angel, Billy, wind up and smack Johnny right in the face. So you run out there and say, Billy, don't. Don't, don't, don't hit Johnny. Stop that. Billy says, okay, I stop. You go back and you start doing dishes again, and next thing you know, you see Billy smacking Johnny again. You go back out and you say, Billy, you, you need to be done. Okay, I'll be done. You go back in, and all of a sudden you see Billy now walloping Johnny. Now you just go and you grab Billy by the ear and you take him in the house. Billy's still your son. You still love Billy, but Billy's causing more harm than good, and Billy needs to come home. And they take that, and J. Vernon McGee says, that's the sin unto physical death, where the Lord says, you're my child, and I love you, but you're causing more harm than good, and you need to come home. Now, for this to work spiritually, we also see that in 1 Corinthians, I already talked about, excuse me, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Is there an example of this in the Bible? I believe there is an example in the Bible. Now, the first one, first one, you may stop and say, yeah, I don't go with that example. I don't know if I go with it either, but I'm still going to mention it. It's Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. You remember in Acts chapter 5, they held back some of the money, and since they held back some of the money, they lied, and they died right then. You can make the case where they saved or not saved. So if you want to say, I don't believe that because I don't think they were saved to start with, I'm not going to necessarily argue with that. Let's go to someone who we know was for sure saved. Moses. Can you go with me to Numbers chapter 20, please? Numbers 20. We forget this. Moses committed a sin that brought forth his physical death. You see this in number chapter 20. And we're getting really short on time. I'm going to have to pick up the pace here a little bit. 
Um, we have going on here in Numbers chapter 20, there's not enough water. So in verse 2, they come together against Moses and Aaron, and the people are getting upset. They said that we wish we would have died. And what are we supposed to do? We don't have any water. So verse 6, Numbers chapter 20, Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, Gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give them drink to the congregation and their animals. Now please note verse 8. If you've ever heard this before, you know where it's going with this. Speak to the rock. Um, Verse 8, it doesn't really look like God's angry. Speak to the rock. But verse 9, Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels! Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Must we, we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly in the congregation, and the animals drank. Completely misrepresented the Lord, struck the rock instead of speaking to it. We know from Paul in 1 Corinthians that the rock represented Jesus Christ. So therefore, striking the rock takes away the analogy that this is supposed to be a picture of Christ on the cross that was only struck once for our sins, and now we just speak to Jesus for salvation. And I know we're running out of time. That's a deep point just to kind of throw in there. But Moses misrepresented God, almost seems to be taking credit for himself, strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. Verse 12, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore... You should not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. God says, Moses, you messed up. I can't let you lead the people anymore into the promised land. Jump ahead with me real quick to Deuteronomy 34. Deuteronomy 34. This is Moses at the end of his life. Verse 1. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is across from Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah to the far as the western sea, the south, and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zor. He says, I will let you see it, Moses. But, verse 4, Then the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have caused you to see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. You're not allowed to go in, Moses. You sinned, and this is your punishment. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there according died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows where was the grave to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. It seems to be a great example there of the sin unto physical death. And it's this idea of where the Lord says, I love you, I've convicted you, uh, you've been rebuked, um, you are my child, but because of the choices you are making, you need to come home now. Now, be careful with this teaching. The next time you hear about a believer dying unexpectedly, I don't want you to sit there and say, ah, oh, sin unto physical death, I wonder what they were doing wrong. No, no, not saying that in any way whatsoever. But this does seem to be a scriptural point where the Lord says this is something that he can do. And that's why John is saying don't pray about it because you you don't know what's going on behind the scenes. It's not that you don't care, but it's not something that we're able to see the full story, the full situation and know. And he reminds us in 17, all unrighteousness is sin. There is sin not leading to death. You and I today have sinned. We didn't die. (laughs) 
I mean, if we died the first time we sinned, there would not be a church. God gives us lots of grace and mercy, but there's a time, too, where the Lord says it's time for Billy to come home because he's causing more harm than good. And I do want to finish this up, verse 18. Uh, We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. We covered that extensively in 1 John 3. When you study this out in the Greek, this is saying you do not keep on habitually, continually sinning. You will sin, I will sin, God forgives us. But if we continue in that pattern of sin, John has repeatedly said, you need to stop and say, are you really a child of God? We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Some quick verses on this. Please remember what the Bible says. Satan is the prince of the people of the air, prince of the power of the air, excuse me, Ephesians 2.2. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Satan is the god of this world. John 12.31, Satan is the ruler of this world. I know we love the hymn that this is my father's world, but at this point this is not. Yes, God is sovereign, but at this point the enemy lies under the sway of the wicked one. The world does, because we have given the world over to sin. Verse 20, and we know the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God in eternal life. Please note in 20, true, true, true. This world is looking for truth, but they're looking for their own version of truth. Truth is Jesus Christ, Holy Spirit, God's Word. There is absolute truth, and it is found in the Bible. Lastly, 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. What is an idol? An idol is anything that gets in the way between you and the Lord. Some idols are obvious. Money, greed, power, those are obvious idols. Some idols are not as obvious. You can worship at the altar of family. You can make your spouse an idol because you care more about pleasing them than you do about the Lord. You can make your kids an idol because you care more about them than the Lord. You can make good things idols. You can make ministry idols. I care more about serving God than God himself. I care more about growing in my knowledge of the Bible than understanding who Jesus Christ is. Any of those things can become so big in your life that what happens is it takes away who Jesus Christ really is. So just remember, an idol is anything that gets between you and the Lord. Some of them seem harmless. Home remodeling projects. But all of a sudden, that can become an idol. That's what you think about all day. You're sketching things out. You're running numbers. And I'm going to go to town. I'm going to do this. I'm going to get up early. It can take over. Landscaping, sports, family, anything. Just be careful that nothing in your life becomes bigger than what God is supposed to be. Let nothing get in the way between you and the Lord. That's why little children keep yourself from idols. You worship at the altar of Jesus Christ, nothing else. So, hey, I've got to let you go here. It's after 8 o'clock. Um, kids are going to be coming, and uh, they will storm the fort here soon. So... We finished up 1 John. It'll be exciting to see where the Lord takes us next week. Remember, fellowship meal next Wednesday. Would you guys stand with me for prayer, please? Lord, always good to finish a book. Always good to hear what you have to say. And Lord, what a great ending there. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Lord, if there's something in our lives that we're making more important than you, and your love, grace, and mercy reveal that to us. We want you to be number one and seek you first in all that we say and do. Thank you and we praise you in your name. Amen. You guys have a good week and God bless.